You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So uh, we are in such a short passage this morning. You guys, um, if you've been with us for a while, you'll notice that um, some weeks I'll be up here and I'll preach like 39 verses, and some weeks I'll preach like two verses. And this is a two-verse week, and it could have been, totally could have been a one-verse week. Um, because Jesus makes some really big claims in our passage this morning. He's going to make uh, claim number one. Um, I'm going to flip my page here. Claim number one is going to be that we, all of us, all the believers, will do the works that he does. Then he's going to increase that claim, and he's going to say, yet greater works than these will you do. And then he's going to speak to prayer, and he's going to tell us that if we ask anything in his name, that he will do it. These are really lofty claims that Jesus makes to his disciples, and so we're going to take our time walking through them. Um, But with it being just two verses, maybe we'll have a truncated sermon today. We'll see. I want us to remember before we parse the words of Jesus, the setting that we're in. We did this last week. I just want you to see that we're building a case here, that Jesus is building a case here. I want you guys to behold in your mind's eye a Jesus who is sitting at table with his closest friends. He's just washed their feet. They've sat down to sup together, and he's speaking gently and tenderly to them in order to try to minister to them as they work through the trouble in their hearts that has arisen as he has said that Judas is going to betray me, that Peter is going to deny me. He has said in the last chapter the manner in which he intends to die, that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. There's a trouble that is agitating in the hearts of his closest friends and disciples. In this whole section of uh, the gospel account, we have labeled on our end of things, on the pastor side of things, in order to kind of anchor us as we are writing these sermons and dwelling with the Lord in prayer and asking him what he wants to show. We've called this whole section of the Bible the farewell discourse. It's been called that before. We've hung on to it. This is Jesus' farewell discourse. It's an intimate conversation between Jesus and his closest friends as he prepares them for his departure. He's heading for a cross, and he's concerned for them. He's thinking about them and how they're going to navigate the great grief of his death as they behold him on a cross, that season of doubt as he spends three days in the tomb. He's preparing them for what is ahead. Of course, he knows the beginning from the end, and he knows that great things happen on the other side of these things, but he doesn't fast forward, does he? He takes the time to enter into their grief, to walk them through this season of his ministry, Because this part is going to be hard. And there will be more difficult parts. And so last week we kind of walked through this, so I'll do it a little bit faster uh, this week. But we kind of saw over the course of this meal, after he washes their feet, that he kind of walks them through uh, a sequence of teaching where he says to them, as as they're troubled in their spirits, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
And then we said last week that everything that he said to them after that was to the end of ministering to them in their troubled hearts. And so he said to them, firstly, let not your hearts hurt. Why? Believe in me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I can do it. I can do it. Fix your eyes on me. I know that these are hard things that, that are coming your way, but believe in me. Take heart. Have faith in me. And then he points their eyes off of their circumstances, and he lifts their chins, and he has them fix their eyes on the kingdom of God. This was the central teaching of Jesus' life and ministry, the kingdom of God. And he brings into focus for them the Father's house, what he calls the Father's house. And he gives them this assurance that in the Father's house are many rooms, room for you. If it were not so, would I say that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will return that you may be with me where I am. And so last week we preached that Jesus was appealing to them in three central anxieties that they would have been feeling in the moment. Is there a father's house? Yeah, there's a father's house. I, I made it. Is there room for me? Yeah, there's room for you. In fact, I prepare the very place where you will be. Well, how do I get there? I'm the way. Well, what if I can't get myself there? You can't. I come back and get you. And so throughout the course of this conversation, he's just building this case for faith in him to get you home, to get you home, to usher you into the presence of the Father, to prepare a place for you in the Father's house. Jesus is comforting them with teaching on the kingdom of God. And that summary needs to serve as a compass for us as we move into our text this morning because we're in the same conversation. You can picture Jesus still in the same breath, the same conversation. We're not in a different week, a different day, a different audience. Jesus is still talking here. So he's continuing to build upon the comforting words that he has for his people. And this is what he says. Verse 11 of last week, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. That's how we, that's how we ended last week. Believe on account of the works themselves. So continuing his thought on the works, he says in verse 12 in our passage this morning, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. What works? The works he was just talking about. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works. So he says, look, the central purpose of all of the works of Jesus Christ, the miracles that he, that he displayed in his earthly ministry, they all serve, we've preached this several times, to certify his message to certify his person, and to certify his message. When Jesus would perform a miracle, the chief end of the miracle was that you would behold him for who he is. He wasn't a miracle worker for miracle workers' sake. In fact, he despised miracle seekers. We, we've, we encountered several passages where he had this a revulsion to people who treated him like a mere miracle worker, like a trick pony, and would come up to him demanding that he do another miracle. And yet he appeals to his closest friends, believe me, believe in me, believe my word, and if you won't, believe on account of the works themselves. And last week, regarding those works, 
I really tried to lift our eyes off of just the miracles of Jesus, which, as an aside, the miracles of Jesus, like multiplying bread, healing the sick, calming the waves, we marvel at these, but Jesus doesn't. Those miracles are kind of boring for the creator of all things. Like, he wasn't like, this is going to be hard, as he says, stop it, to a storm, and it stops. But it did certify to those who, who re- rejected his deity, that he is God. It certified, at, like, like they said on that boat when he calmed the storm, who, who is this, that the wind and the seas obey him? So when Jesus talks about doing greater works than these, I want us to focus on two central things this morning. One is that it's not, he doesn't just mean like going out and doing greater miracles than he did. And even if he did mean that, and we'll talk about it briefly this morning, I want you to know that like, I looked up this week, um, this is a weird way to do sermon study. Don't recommend it. But I, look, I was watching a YouTube documentary on bread factories. And I found like this PBS broadcast from like 20 years ago that was like featuring this one bread factory in the UK. And uh, in it, I, just, I was just trying to find out, like Google wasn't helping me. I was just trying to find out how many loaves of bread can a bread factory make in a day? I just want to know this. And I learned that a, this bread factory 20 years ago could make 350,000 loaves of bread in a day. Okay, that's a lot. And so I bring it up to say that as we talk about Jesus in comforting his people, following in the works that he did, doing the works that he did, I want to point out that he doesn't just mean those works. The whole world, whether they've accepted or rejected Jesus, has been chasing after doing the works that he did, if we mean it that way. Uh, Just open a bread factory and you can multiply bread, right? In fact, you can make more than 5,000 like Jesus did, right? Jonas Salk, in curing polio, theoretically made more lame people walk than Jesus did, right? We're not just talking about Jesus' promise that when we say that he'll we'll walk in the works that he did and we'll do the works that he did, those works. I want to point us back to last week when we said that the works that Jesus is pointing them to, to comfort them as they look out at a scary future, is the work of Calvary, the work on the cross, the work of laying down your life for the salvation of the world, the work of spreading the gospel message among the nations, the work of making disciples. All of these miracle works, the ones that we think of as the great works, the big works, these were the boring works, the works that, from Christ's perspective, they just serve to certify the greater work. See, what made Jesus different from Lazarus? Right? We're ta- let's talk about two guys who were raised from the dead. Think of it. Jesus, the bread multiplier, Jesus, the death, the fire, Jesus, the healer, Jesus, the one who can restore sight to the blind, restore hearing to the deaf. You take all those works together with a Jesus who raises from the dead, and he looks a good bit different from Lazarus, who also rose from the dead, 
by the power of Jesus. Hold them all together, all the works, and they signify and certify one major work that the big work, the work of atonement, the work of laying down his life as a sacrifice for many, he says, believe it. Let the works certify and testify to my greater work. I pointed out this morning to say, guys, I, 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 don't mean to, I didn't mean to dwell on it this long, but I pointed out to say that when Jesus first brings up works in this discourse, he says it on account of his people believing in him. The whole point of it is believe in me. The whole appeal to them and their anxiety and their troubled heart, believe in me. I and the Father are one. Believe it. Take it to the bank. You won't believe it. Look to the works. About those works, you're going to do them. You're going to join me in them. And, that, and that's the next point, big point this morning, is I've heard this passage preached a number of different ways, and one of them says that this is primarily about like the apostolic ministry, that this is, he's primarily talking to the original disciples because they're going to go out in the early church and they're going to do miracles and signs and wonders, and that's what he means, is you're going to do the same things that I did. But I know that's wrong for a fact, Because he says in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about all believers. Whoever believes in me. This is a greater claim than just like premeditating the great wondrous works of the apostles. He's talking about the power of the church. He's talking about you. We also know that when he says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, that he can't, he can't mean that we will all do all the works that we saw him do in his earthly ministry. Otherwise, there would be no need for all of the passages of Scripture that address the, the different distribution of gifts among the church, that some people have this one, some people have that one, and instruction on how to use them for the building up of the body and the glorification of God. So it doesn't mean that all of us are given all of the various gifts that we saw Jesus possess in his life. So what does it mean when he says that all who believe in him will also do the works that I do? In prayer time with the Lord, in preparing this message, I really, um, we could talk a lot about a a lot of ways, different ways to do this, but I want to give you two. One is, one work is foot washing. It's the last work they saw him do before making this statement. He knelt down and he washed their feet. You, likewise, church, will join him in the works that he does. What works? Foot washing. And I want to use foot washing as a metaphor or an example for a whole body of works that Jesus did in his life. The second work that you will do, that he did, is you will make disciples. In all of the foot washing work that you do, foot washing being a placeholder for a great body of work, will serve to produce disciples, to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, to multiply the church. These are the works that you will walk in that he did. And here's the thing, though. You know, I was wrestling with this. I'm like, gosh, why when we preach this book, when we preach this passage, do we kind of default to 
other types of works. We want it to mean other types of works. And it doesn't not mean, potentially, other types of works. He may give you any number of types of works to do. Why do we want him to mean specific types of work? And by that, I mean really loud, powerful works. Why do we want to be able to raise the dead? Why do we want to be able to carry out miraculous healings? I'll put foot washing as the header on one body of works, and I'll put bread multiplication as the heading on this other body of works. Why do we want Jesus to mostly mean multiplying bread when he says that we will do the works that he did and not mostly mean washing feet? Because there was a great body of works that we could draw from to make him mean when he says we will all do the works that he's done. Why do we jump to multiplying bread and not to washing feet? Why do we jump to multiplying bread and not making disciples? I would argue that the main enemy in this is that we want to join Christ in his glory without having to join him in his suffering and death. We want to join Christ in his glory without having to join him in his suffering and his service and his death. And some of us may be called into some grand work. And some of us may be called into some humble work. Let me correct my statement. Some of us could be called into some grand work. All of us are called into the humble work. We will all join him in his death. This is the other thing. He says all believers. This is the clarifying point number one. He doesn't just mean the apostles. And he doesn't just mean some. He doesn't just mean pastors. He doesn't. He means talk about all believers. Number two is he says we will all do the works that he does. Not we might and not we can, but we will. The church, the people, you do the works that he did. You are doing them. You will do them. How can it be so? And why is it that when I was writing this sermon, was I trying to think about the how-to steps that I then give to you? Since you're going to do it, here's how to do it. And it's because we take from him the truth that this is his church. Jesus said about the church, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is what Jesus said about the church. It is his will that the Father be glorified through the activity of the church. The way that he is redeeming and ransoming a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation is through the church. As you live the humble life of service and death to self, and you embrace your resurrected new life in the Holy Spirit, the Lord accomplishes his mission upon the face of the earth to ransom a people for himself. This room exists on account of the success of, of the church through the Holy Spirit to redeem a people to himself. How does a guy at a dinner table the week of his death in Jerusalem purchase a people in Mascuda, Illinois 2,000 years later? Because all those who believe will do the works that he does. 
we make disciples. And we glorify God. See, he goes one further to say, you won't just do the works that I do, but greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. I'm going to save because I am going to the Father to preach more thoroughly next week because he's alluding to sending the Holy Spirit and next week he's going to talk at length about sending the Holy Spirit. So I want to save it just a little. But I do want to focus this week on his claim that we will do yet greater works than these. Greater works than Jesus? Maybe you can track with me so far that we will do the works of Jesus, same works as Jesus. Greater works than Jesus? Like, I'm afraid to preach this. Like, in writing it, I'm like, is this heresy? Can I say it this boldly? Greater works than Jesus? Because my Jesus went to a cross. He atoned for the sins of the world. Greater works than Jesus? What is he talking about? And again, we want it to mean that we'll make more bread than he did. We want it to mean that. We do, guys. Like, think about the way that we function in the Christian life. We, certain stories of Jesus, and we're like those people kind of following him around the lake, and we're like, hey, can you do the bread thing again? Remember that story? Let me be a great bread maker. Let me be a great healer. Let me make my own little kingdom where I'm never hungry, where I never thirst where I'm never in pain, where I never suffer. I see a great appeal to certain types of works and signs and symbols and miracles that Jesus has done because they decidedly serve me in this life. And so we want to take these promises and claim them for ourselves and do greater works than him. For what, to what end? To the chief end of building our own kingdom and our own comfort. But see, Jesus says here, whatever you ask in my name, I'll preach this in a minute, I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son is the reason that he gives for the works that he did, that he will do. The works that he does and the works that he will do as he answers prayer, he will do that the Father will be glorified in the Son. This is the driving motive of the works of Jesus Christ to include the cross itself. Jesus is preoccupied with glorifying the Father in the Son, through the Son. And then we want to co-opt his works, replicate his works, exceed his works, that we would glorify Adam in Adam. Well, in that way, we're not like Jesus at all. It made me think of a story from Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. I'll read it real quick. The mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came up to him, Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she bows out down at his feet, she asked him for something, and he said to her, what do you want? And I think he meant it like it sounds. She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? 
And they said to him, we're able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And then the 10 heard it, so the other disciples, and they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them and to him, to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever must be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I thought of this passage because Jesus is saying, you're going to do greater works than these. But then in, in this other gospel account, he says, those of you who would be great, become a servant. Greatness is the lowering of oneself to join the Son of Man in his lowering of himself who came not to be served, but to serve and to give up his life as a ransom for many. And this makes sense that he would point this out here. We're coming off of the heels of his teaching that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about producing the church on account of his death and resurrection that a new body of work would be built among the people of God, that you guys will go out, the product, the fruits of the dead seed that sprouted forth this new work. This is you. This is what Jesus is talking about. Well, how do you join him? In death. He just taught about this, that the way to life is through death. The death of your flesh, the death of yourself, the death of the former self. Your sin nature pinned upon a cross. New life taken up in you, in the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit only ever does what Jesus is talking about here. The Holy Spirit only ever does what Jesus is talking about here. And the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Save it for next week, Adam. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. You're going to do greater works than these. Not multiply more bread, multiply more disciples. You, church, will make more disciples than Jesus made in his earthly ministry alone. You will bring more people under the banner of God's love than Christ did in his earthly ministry alone. And the power in that is Christ. So that he gets the glory every time it happens. Now this is a little bit of a reach. I'll admit that. I was thinking about this too. In what other ways is the work that he accomplishes in the church different from and even could be described as greater than the works that Christ did? Here's what I know. Here's the the ways I know I won't be similar to Christ. When I die, I go straight into the approval of the Father. I go straight into the presence of the King without having to pass through wrath. 
Jesus didn't get to do that. In Jesus' death, he drank the cup of God's wrath. When I die, I drink the cup of Christ. The blood of the new covenant, the atoning work. How is that not greater? That's greater. That's the assurance. He went first so that we wouldn't have to walk in that. So that death would mean life for us. Death meant death for him before it meant life. Death just means life for us. Thank you, Jesus. The next he goes, because I am going to the Father, alluding to sending the Spirit, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So when I was first writing this passage, I wrote a really awful sermon. I had to scrap it because I recognized that I was writing a sermon that spoke to all of my lack of faith when it comes to prayer. I was adding all of the necessary qualifications to this statement. I was just boxing it in by all of these different things. And I was going to come here and tell you all the reasons why your prayers aren't working. That's what the sermon was. But Jesus doesn't do that here. Jesus is looking his best friends in the hour of their need, in the agitation of their soul, in the eyes, and he's saying to them, ask me anything in my name. I'll do it. What? What? I mean, I will say to you, I'm fairly sure that the six inches of snow that we have out there is directly on account of my son, Bo. Okay? Hey, Bo. Sorry, buddy. But he prayed, will you dump some snow on us, Lord? And the Lord dumped some snow on us. And he's got a history with that prayer. And the Lord delights to answer it. It made me think about a time, um, Jack was maybe seven years old, and I took him to an arcade for the first time, just a dad date, and he just went nuts, just sucked at all the games, and after an hour and a half, had like 40 tickets, but to him, they might as well have been like 1,000 tickets, right? And he goes up to the counter, and he hands them over to the guy, and he gets his eyes on the prize that he wants. It's this plush toy that costs like 5,000 tickets. And to him, there might be enough here. And he hands them over, and the guy's got to count them. And he's just, while the guy's counting them, just praying, please, God, please, God, please, God. And as a good father, I'm preparing for the letdown, right? And I'm like thinking through how I'm going to help him navigate the disappointment that's about to come for him until the teenager behind the counter, just moved by what he's seeing, grabs the plush toy and says, you've got enough, and hands him the plush toy. And the whole way home, while he's holding this thing, is just declaring to God, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God. The Lord teaching me this, when I want to teach him what I was preparing to teach you this morning. When Jesus says, ask me anything in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And this is the only caveat he gives here. And so it's the only caveat I'm going to preach this morning. In that particular story that I just shared with you, God got all the glory. He asked the God of heavens 
because that just didn't seem too big for him. And it proved not to be. And afterwards, it caused his heart to sing the glories of God. Not the glories of the plush toy, not the glories of Jack, the glories of God. Because this is the will of Christ, that the Father would be glorified in the Son as he gives the yes and amen to our prayers. What he's inviting his disciples, his friends into, what he's inviting us into is the right, the access to pray audacious prayers, to ask for things that are impossible because they're possible with him. And I don't know if these disciples who heard him say this to them would go on to read some clarifying language that Paul would put in his letters or that Peter would put in his letters when it comes to prayer. Because there is more to learn about prayer. But Jesus didn't sit down and start a Bible study on prayer here and give them all of those things in this sitting. He just said, ask me anything in my name and I will do it. And so all I want to preach this morning is what it means to ask for something in Jesus' name. To ask for something in Jesus' name is to invoke the name of Jesus for the thing that you are requesting. To call on the Son who reigns at the right hand of the Father, the Son who passed through death, the Son who gave up his life for you, the Son who shed his blood and used to seal the covenant of your approval before the Father, that Jesus, to invoke his name in prayer. That's what it means to pray in his name. And when you pray in his name, and then he answers, there's only one who gets the glory there, right? When you say, my Jesus is able, I'm not, but I call on him, and then he does the thing, he loves that. Because he delights to glorify the Father through the Son. But when you invoke his name like a trick pony, he's responded to that. Or when you invoke his name, but you really just mean, can I have the thing I want? He doesn't much get a lot of glory in that. I know a lot of people, I'm one of them, to tell you the truth, who like at the end of every prayer as an instinct will say, in Jesus' name, amen. We're responding to this. He said, ask for anything in my name. And so like as a cheat code, we just like tack it on to the end of all of our prayers. Because he said, if I do it in his name, in your name, in your name. It's not saying the right sequence of words. It's asking him in his name. Are you sure you're even asking him? Or are you asking the wall and tacking on in Jesus' name? Because his invitation is to come to him. He's there. He's like this far from them right now. He's looking them in the eyes. Ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. I will do it. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Lastly, I want to tie this promise to the works. 
for these 12, they would depend on Jesus and prayer and asking Jesus for things that only he could do as they were about the activities of Jesus, as they were living out what he just said would be true, that they would do the foot washing work, that they would do the flesh dying work, that they would do the laying down of their life work, that they would do the disciple-making work, that they would do the spreading the gospel work. As they were doing those things that he said they would do, they were depending on him. But let me see, let me show you guys what they were depending on him for. I wrote this a couple of years ago. I'm just going to read it right off the page about the fate of the disciples. Peter and Paul were both martyred in Rome during the persecution under Emperor Nero. Paul was beheaded while Peter was crucified upside down at his request since he did not feel that he was worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. Andrew went to the land of the man-eaters, which is now Russia. Christians were there claimed that he was the first to bring the gospel to their land. He also preached in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and in Greece, where he is said to have been crucified. Thomas was most active in the area east of Syria. Tradition has him preaching as far east as India, where the ancient Marthoma Christians revere him as the founder of the Christian faith there. They claim that he died when he was pierced through with the spears of four soldiers. Philip is said to have had a powerful ministry in the Carthage area, North Africa, and then in Asia Minor, where he converted the wife of a Roman proconsul, and in retaliation, he was arrested and cruelly put to death. Matthew, the tax collector and writer of one of the Gospels, ministered in Persia and Ethiopia. Reports say that he was stabbed in Ethiopia and died. It's reported that Bartholomew went to India with Thomas, back to Armenia, and also to Ethiopia and southern Arabia. There are many accounts of how he met his death as a martyr for the Gospel. James is reported to have ministered in Syria, and the Jewish historian Josephus reported that he was stoned and then clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot ministered in Persia and was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace Judas, went to Syria with Andrew and to death by burning. John was the only one of the apostles generally thought to have died a natural death from old age. He was the leader of the church in Ephesus and is said to have taken care of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in his home. During Domitian's persecution, he was exiled to the island of Patmos, and history says that he escaped unhurt after being cast into boiling oil in Rome. So these folks were given this message of courage. Let not your hearts be troubled. Take heart. You will do the works that I do. Greater works than these will you do. And it included dying for the sake of their enemies. It included dying to bring the gospel to the lost. It included forsaking comfort, approval, security. They laid down their lives in faith that if they joined Christ in his death, they would join him in his resurrection. In church, they have. And you will. You will, Jesus said. The greater works of the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, 
fully dependent upon Christ in prayer is the work of laying down our lives in service to the dead and dying world to spread the gospel to the nations, to your neighbors. To gather the remnant for Jesus Christ. So maybe all I want to say about prayer for this week to that end is that as your activity looks like what Jesus said it would, your prayer life will more closely reflect what Jesus said it would look like. The things that you're asking him for are naturally going to be the things that are fueling what you think you need for the activity that you're doing. And so if my primary activity is about building my kingdom, then my prayers are likely also about building my kingdom. And since Jesus didn't promise that he'd build your kingdom, he promised that he'd build his father's kingdom, it probably makes some sense for you to assess your activity before you assess your prayer life. Because the things that you desperately need Jesus for will become evident as you are following him into the things that he said you'd do. Like, right before you share the gospel with somebody, that the Holy Spirit is showing you that he would like for you to share the gospel with. Have you noticed that your prayers sound a lot different than before you go into a job interview? Lord, give me this job. Lord, save her. They just sound different. By all means, ask for snow. You know? Like, he loves to answer those prayers, but he didn't promise he would. He didn't promise he'd hear yes to those. He did promise that he'd build his father's house. So that was my labor of prayer over the church this week, and it's what I'm going to labor over you now here. I'm going to ask you guys to join me in it. That we would be a church that is about our Father's business, the way that our Lord was about our Father's business, the way that he said that we would follow him into his works, and that our prayer lives, as we call on his name, would be the engine of our activity. Does that make sense? Let's ask him that together as one.